Welcome to the Dance Centre podcast. I am your host, Claire French, and I'm joining you from the traditional unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish and Tsleil-Waututh peoples, also known as Vancouver, Canada. I'll be talking to dancers, choreographers and other members of the dance world here on the West Coast to find out more about their creative work and practices and to discuss what it means to us to be dance professionals today. Thanks for joining us. Today I'm joined by Julia Taff, Artistic Director of Ariosa. Choreographer Julia Taff combines art, environment and adventure, making dances for buildings, mountains, neighborhoods, theatres and trees, finding new movement perspectives in the realm of suspension. As the Artistic Director of Ariosa, which is a Vancouver-based vertical dance company, Julia has choreographed over 25 works on location, including Stromus Chief Mountain in Squamish, Taipei City Hall, Cirque du Soleil Headquarters, Vancouver Library Square, Banff Centre, Scotiabank Dance Centre and Toronto's 58-storey L Tower. Prior to founding Ariosa, Julia performed across Canada with Ruth Cansfield and around the world with Bandaloop. Julia attained ACMG Rock Guide Certification in 1997. Julia, welcome. So glad that we get this opportunity in the midst of all the craziness and busyness to actually just kind of connect and share your adventures, your stories, your projects, where you're at with Ariosa Dance with our listeners. So yeah, thank you so much for being here, joining me. Let's start with how you found aerial dance or vertical dance, as you as you call it, mm-hmm. and maybe a little bit about training or milestones. Well, I found my way to where I am as a vertical choreographer. It was a journey through my practice as as a contemporary dancer. So I trained in many different dance forms that contemporary dancers train in, ballet, jazz, all of the old classics, and uh, had a very traditional, rigorous training, and then became a professional right out of high school in Winnipeg. And I was part of a group that founded a new dance company in the city, which doesn't exist anymore, but it was a great opportunity to create original work. And, you know, the thing about being in a small dance company like that is we had a season which was very specific, and then we had a lot of time off as well. And I would say for myself, that's when my interests in uh, movement above the ground came about because I had a lot of friends that were enthralled with rock climbing, which is pretty funny, actually, because Winnipeg is totally flat. Mm-hmm. And- <laughs> it's great. I love it. <laughs> and, uh, and yet they were very adventurous and would drive to northern Ontario to the Lake of the Woods area, which is Canadian Shield. And there's these beautiful granite old, old mountains that are basically like mounds above the lake and cliffs above the lakes. And it was quite adventurous. So they were putting up climbing routes and teaching themselves how to climb from books. The whole climbing gym thing had basically just started at that point, because this was, you know, in the early 90s, it was just starting to get popular. And the, um, the Canadian military actually had a plywood climbing wall at one of their one of their training facilities in Winnipeg. 
Wow. And so we would all go and sit in front of this, you know, uh, 16 foot wide plywood wall, and it would have, you know, a few holds on it. (laughs) And we would all ooh and ah, and it was it was thrilling for me, because it was so physical. And it was figuring out movement, which is very similar to choreography, discovering Mm -hmm. movement, you know, figuring out how to do things that you imagine and don't know how to do, but training your body to be able to do them. Uh, And that kind of body intelligence was really appealing to me. And it got me out of the studio, which is one thing my dance career never gave me was that connection to nature. And at that point, it was a real gap for me. Like Mm. I wanted to be outside. I wanted to be spending as much time as possible as I could. And yet, you know, as I mentioned earlier, Because my training was so rigorous, it was kind of discouraged as a dancer to be doing other physical pursuits. Ooh, skiing's dangerous. Ooh, climbing, that's dangerous. You could get hurt and then you won't be able to dance. Yeah, yeah. Never dance could hurt. Yeah. (laughs) And also, how? what do you mean you're not going to a summer school? You have to train all the time. If you miss a week of training, you'll be a bad dancer. Yeah. You know, I really did grow up with that kind of mentality and it's something I had to shake off. Uh-huh. So I came to climbing and then that sort of led me away from dance. And I actually had an opportunity where I had to make a choice. Uh, a choreographer in Winnipeg, Stephanie Ballard, was continuing a project, which was really amazing. She basically was getting all these women together and doing yeah. this work. It was multi-generational. And, and so we did a version in Winnipeg, and then we she had this opportunity. We were all going to gather in New York, but I had already made a plan to go to the Yukon, mm-hmm. to Dawson City. Because this climbing thing had really triggered my need to be outdoors in nature. And so I actually said no to that project in New York. And I went up to the Yukon for the summer. And I had the opportunity to go out onto the land and do a really kind of risky climbing. Not it wasn't a climbing trip, it was a hiking trip, backcountry mountain trip with not a lot of skills and not a not enough planning. But You know, it was a very powerful experience for me. And so those two things together kind of shifted my sense of my body, you know, and my connection of of my practice to the land. And I started to spend more time in British Columbia, in Mm. Squamish, where there Mm. was rock climbing available. Mm -hmm. Is that what brought you to BC then? Yeah. 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 I mean, I, I did have a few dance performances booked. I, Dancing on the Edge had allowed me to come and, mm-hmm. and uh, perform at the fire hall. And then Donna Spencer had given our choreographers in Winnipeg a, a mixed bill performance. So we came and, and did this show at the fire hall. And so I had these opportunities to kind of go back and forth. And, and all of a sudden, my dance season, working in the winter in Winnipeg, and then having the summers free... All of a sudden, it allowed me to start training as a rock climbing guide. In Amazing. So I started living in both locations for a few years oh, and yeah. living a dual life. Yeah. And then I, I as I trained to become a, um, a climbing guide, I realized, oh, no, I've chosen another profession that has <laughs> no hope of, you know, earning me a decent living. And <laughs> <laughs> very, very niche particular. Yeah. <laughs> That's wonderful. But the exploring I love, you know, the kind of the explorative nature of it or the fact that you were like 
you that's what won you over it seems is like the the space to explore and explore the body in spaces and not feel confined or not refined to the point of like ruling out other opportunities or ruling out like you say the environment or spaces other spaces I think that's I think that's really exciting I feel like I feel like the gradual kind of the desire kind of grew from what you're talking about. I feel like it kind of, you know, kind of started to consume you. I think it's amazing. So you obviously became a rock climbing guide. And I, I, I heard you're, you were also a stunt performer. Is that correct? Have you yeah. done stunt work too? Yes. Yeah. You see, this yeah. is all kind of like diversifying your, like not only income base, but also making it versatile all of these different skills that you're learning, I think is so exciting. So could you talk a little bit about that maybe? Yeah, well, the thing about being in Vancouver and being unemployed was that, you know, the the film industry is, uh, you know, it's a small world. It, some of these worlds have overlap, right? And yeah. so being a climber, I knew some stunt uh, riggers and, and uh, stunt coordinators, and they knew that I was an athlete. Mm-hmm. And you know, stunts sounds very glamorous. And of course, it is a much higher paid job working Mm -hmm. in film and TV. And it's very, very unreliable. So in my case, one of the reasons that I started to get hired was because I had the skills to protect actors when they were uh, filming scenes going climbing. So, uh, you know, I could set up the belays, I could like rig a camera person to hang over the edge of a cliff, I could train an actor to uh, know the things they would need as a to play a climber. So I got a few little jobs like that through word of mouth. And then the stunt coordinators that I met said, Oh, you know, we're looking for a double for uh, Robbie Chong, who is the sister of Ray Don Chong. So I ended up doubling for those two sisters in a few uh, bad TV shows. Excellent. So, yeah, That's so fun. <laughs> I know what you mean, though. Yeah. But anyways, I worked. And and so so I got a little taste of that bug, get a nice paycheck and get fed at work and <laughs> do some fun things. Uh, yeah, it's a really interesting process. I actually really love the behind the scenes part of it. And I've done a lot of other roles in uh, commercial film and TV. Yeah. I've made a few little films myself when I'm on a very small scale mm-hmm. uh, with, you know, other filmmakers helping to produce. Yeah, that's that's great. So so do you continue to do that? Uh, were you doing that before Ariosa Dance? Do you do it when you can with Ariosa? Because you're so busy with Ariosa Dance as it is. Do you, do you continue an independent consultancy kind of career? You know, Arios is getting ready to do a TV shoot right now, which is mm-hmm. not norm. We don't do a lot. The last one we did, I think, was 2015 or 2016. Right. So we do have one coming up, which is exciting because, you know, emerging out of this pandemic world, most of the most of the lucrative opportunities that we've had to collaborate and and, you know, requests for performances have totally dried up and they're just starting to come back. Yeah. To answer your question about do I still work in the film industry? Well, you know, there came a moment in my career working in film where I was sitting around on set not being needed. I was writing grant applications to 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 do projects and we got this funding to do a Bravo video mm-hmm. in the mountains and 
I kind of went to the director of photography and said, okay, so, uh, I gotta go. <laughs> and that has been, you know, that's really been my death knell in the film and TV commercial industry is that ultimately, you know, I, while I loved some of the jobs, I didn't love all of the jobs there, you know, there's a wide range of work you can do. Yeah. It's uh, it just wasn't really for me. It wasn't physical. Oddly enough, it wasn't yeah. physical enough. It yeah, wasn't yeah. stimulating enough. No. And and because I would say no to jobs sometimes, that is your death knell in film and TV. You have another life and you walk away from it. You don't get called again. Yeah. So I don't think I was, you know, I was never the best stunt performer and I wasn't the most the keenest. So eventually, you know, the industry got bigger and I kept getting older and I just got busier and busier doing my live work and starting a dance company, which is something that I had never wanted to do. Yeah, right. Yeah, I think that's fascinating because I always say I never wanted to choreograph when I was younger. That's that's the one thing I said I would never, ever do. And that's the thing I've done the most of so far. <laughs> it's kind of shifting now, like you say, but that's the thing, right? You realize how consuming it would be and then also how rewarding it would be for those reasons. And obviously you've found that with Ariosa and being able to explore the things you've talked about already, the creative side, the and overseeing the entire project, you know, managing the time, managing all of those logistics that you've learned how to do, which we're, I mean, we won't dwell on this, I promise. <laughs> I think this is a really good time to talk about, well, maybe I'm really interested personally in where ideas for projects start with you, because I'm, uh, as I am with every artist, and I know that it always is always changing, but because you have location as such a big thing or a site to such a big element of your work. And then also I'm imagining that you are invited by places for, you know, for your work um, as well. So could you talk a little bit about how maybe different ideas have started or how the project you're working or the projects you're working on now started just in a kind of broad sense of what came first in a way, if it's possible. <laughs> I'll start back at Great. the mountains because okay. that's really where it started for mm -hmm. me. You know, my love of climbing and my job as a climber uh, to take people onto the cliffs in Squamish and to climb the Squamish Chief and to spend all of my time climbing. It's very similar to dancing at a high level. Like you cannot take time off because you're not capable of doing the movements you need to do. And in climbing, if you can't do the movements you can risk injury, you can risk death, and you can also risk not being able to complete your job if that is yes, <laughs> right. getting paid that day. So, you know, that shift in perspective about what, what risk is, the risk mm -hmm. of failure, really helped me with my dance. Mm. It made me such a, it made me a much stronger performer because I, my inhibitions, my fear of embarrassment, my fear of tripping or falling down, you know, it just became so small, you know, yeah. compared to, Oh, if I fall here, I, I'm definitely going to break my ankle. I might flip upside down and get a head injury and my client won't be able to rescue me. So that's not, you know, yeah. so yeah. So those things were really linked. And so for me, spending time on the Squamish Chief was very satisfying physically and creatively, you know, my body learning movements and, and whatnot. But culturally, there was a gap. 
because I was trained as a dancer and mm -hmm. I grew up in the culture of dance. And mm -hmm. so I wanted to dance on the mountain mm -hmm. and I knew how to get to these really interesting places. Like <laughs> there, one of my uh, films that I'm really fond of is called The Granite Ocean. And it really centered on this journey of, you know, a woman climbing, emerging from a cocoon on this mountain face and then climbing up to this little platform and growing wings and learning how to fly. Mm -hmm. And just to be able to dance on this triangular ledge, uh, you know, a uh, thousand feet off the ground that was a couple of, not even a meter, like maybe a meter, two meters long and three meters on either side, right? So wow. it was, you know, it was very, to me, it was I wanted to dance in those places and I wanted to bring that part of myself to the mountains. So, so we had to keep going back. Like the first time we went, we just went to explore these different locations and build the story so that we would have a video to apply for funding to do the actual project. Right. And that little video that my friend Janet Rodden cut, we use that to explain what we wanted to do, but it also became a film in its own right, and it toured in the Mountain Film Festival circuit. Amazing. That's which is great. where I found my first audiences, yeah. and that led to the invitation to create a live performance at the Vancouver International Mountain Film Festival. Many years ago, I think it was 1999, I did a solo performance for all these climbers at the um, Centennial Theatre Centre in North Vancouver. <laughs> was a packed house so no dance, dance audience <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah oh my gosh that's amazing great yeah and so that was really fun to have you know a commission like that mm -hmm. and then that also led to a commission at the bounce center at the same time that our film premiere was premiering at the bounce center so uh -huh. i really had a lot of encouragement and support outside of the dance community to begin what yeah. I was doing oh, and, wonderful. Uh, I really needed it at that point because it just did not feel like the dance community was ready for it you know yeah in terms of is this dance does it deserve funding what is she talking about that sounds dangerous all these things were questions that I didn't I couldn't prove that it was that, that could be done yeah. <laughs> other than by doing it. <laughs> At the relatability of it, you know, like so that they're already, from what you're talking about, there's there's already this sense of it being able to expand the movement audience because the people you were who were the people who were coming to watch this had an understanding and an interest in mountaineering. And and so they were not coming to gawk at it as spectacle in terms of that's unsafe or wow, how daring, because they have this insight into the safety, you know, or into the rigor that goes into the practice. But then you introduce them to the creative side, the creative possibilities, which I think is, and then the relatability comes from, not from the dancers deciding that it's relatable, but from the audience deciding, you know, a different audience deciding that they can relate to dance. I think that's I love stories like that. I think it's beautiful. Yeah, and climbers are creative and they see things from different perspectives. Mm -hmm. Unless you are a climber, you do not get that perspective of sitting on a tiny ledge looking down from the world. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, now that we have drones, those type of perspectives are becoming more available to people and you see it in the camera work of films and uh, commercials and photography and and all of this our perspectives have shifted mm -hmm. based on the tools that we have but climbers have had those you know and the, 
they've had those perspectives as long as they've been climbing and they have earned their right to be in those places with with fear and sweat and and that's a form of embodiment which is so sophisticated and like and that we can't get from drones or from visual you know having the visual representation of it like that's an embodied absolute experiential insight that these climbers have that is beyond you know as you say, beyond what dance can teach us in our safe spaces. And they are dancers because they are, they have to learn movement in order to get where they want to go. Yeah. They have to discover movement. They've got to link movements. It's not just like, oh, now I know how to do this move. Sometimes you I can only hold on to a hold for like three seconds before you have to move on. Mm-hmm. So you're using things like momentum and sequencing and patterning to be able to to move. So there is that creativity there. And I think that that my performance has triggered that awareness mm-hmm. where the support came from. Absolutely. Drawing attention to suspension in the most, you know, kind of like literal way can possibly to give us all a sense of what it would be is kind of exaggerated you know from the dance perspective in the work you do but then there's also the application of movement knowledge right that's what you're talking about which essentially is a way of defining a good dancer right is being able to apply their knowledge in the moment you know well, and it's also, I think it is applying the value of dance to us as humans and to our society. And I really feel it, at this point in my career as a dancer, it's it's much too overlooked as part of a value of professional dance is tapping into that knowledge mm-hmm. and making it accessible to more people. Mm-hmm. So when I started out many, many years ago, it was very, very clearly defined roles. You're an audience, you're a performer, you're a dancer, you're not a dancer. Uh, you know, in, in all aspects of performance, those things are becoming more blended and hopefully less hierarchical. And and that's one thing I feel like I'm still wrapping my own head around is what is a how can I reframe my work as a professional dancer to love all dancing bodies and to assess what's a good dance and what's not a good dance and who should be dancing? And, you know, I'm really feeling quite rebellious against a lot of those things these days because I understand so much of the privilege that it takes to become a certain type of dancer, the um, the cost the yeah. time, the support, the encouragement, that the gates that are in front of you, you know, who is deciding if you're a good dancer? Who is deciding if you get money to keep dancing? Who is yeah. like all of these things, they're only being cracked open now in terms yeah. of professional dance. And- I completely agree. And also like who allows you to dance in public, you know, public mm-hmm. spaces. So like concert dance is only one a very small area of dance these days. But for that to have been defining what dance is for decades, maybe even centuries, is the work that we have to undo, right? It, so. it really is. And also our role as professional dancers, how can we bring that value of dance to everyone so that it becomes more embedded in the culture and less of an us and them scenario? because dance is so healing we need it so much and and we're at such danger now of being digitized and you know just becoming these meat sacks that with eyes (laughs) (laughs) objet d'art right just like these visual kind of like yeah 
Yeah, yeah just like, um, you know, candy on the walls or on screens that you can mm-hmm. kind of walk so by. Heal, and- yeah, healing from trauma, for connecting, for just the joy and reminder of being human. You know, I really want, at this point, I'm, I'm so interested in finding those opportunities and reinforcing those values because it's really hard to kind of slip back away from them again and start categorizing things. Yeah. So I think there's also like a sense of like, so some of your concepts actually take you into nature, like Mm. in the, in the forest or in the trees. Are you, was this Tofino? Were you in Tofino on the island for a project or is that what you're doing now? That kind of takes us, you know, back to that original question, like, where do your ideas come from? Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, my next, so my next anecdote about that is, so I moved to Tofino as a, a life balance decision. It was something that my partner and I decided that we wanted to do. Beautiful. And that happened in 2011, kind oh. when I was starting to feel like, yes, I know what I'm doing as a choreographer and an artistic director and people believe I can do it. Yes. <laughs> and at that moment, I moved away from the city, which mm-hmm. is not you know, that's not the best career move. I know, it seems counterintuitive, but at the same time, balance. You know, it's about balance. Yeah. You said. I didn't make it easy on myself. Let's put yeah. it that way. But it just, it had to happen. And, and ironically, now I'm at a point in my life where I'm like, okay, well, work is so important. I'm not sure that I can make the right choices for my life because work seems to be more important than my life. Some and everything. Yeah. <laughs> but so I moved to Tofino. This, it was a very tiny town at that time. And it was just about to explode, I guess, mm. in terms of global popularity. And it's really different now. But at that point, the woman that married my uh, a spouse and I was an activist uh, for salmon. And she knew about my background as a dancer and dancing on buildings and dancing on cliffs. And she was thinking, you need to help us protect the salmon. Mm. We are the superheroes for salmon and we want to fly. And, <laughs> and I said, well, there's no tall buildings around here. There's no cliffs. I don't know what to do. You know, I can dance in nature. I am a contemporary dancer, but I don't know how to take my practice here. And she mm. said, you have to meet your neighbor. She's a tree climber and a tree rigger and then I moved to Tofino and unfortunately Gail died this woman who married us she had an aneurysm and she just died she was gone and I was just left with this phone number and I called Stephanie and I said hello you don't know me but Gail said we should talk you're a tree climber and I'm I'm a dancer and I'd love to think about dancing with trees And, and she just said yes right away and we started collaborating. She showed up on site. We just we picked a site at one point, and she she showed me how she rigged the trees. And she pulled out this giant crossbow and had this bolt with the fishing line on it, and she used it to hold <laughs> up and over this uh, big old growth tree. And then from that fishing line, we attached a rope and pulled it up. And she taught me the climbing techniques. And we ended up hanging out at the top of this huge cedar tree that was like 500 years old and it was just so magical and we became really good friends and that's how the tree dancing practice started it started out of needing to dance in Tofino and not having anywhere to dance not having a cliff or a building no appropriate (laughs) buildings (laughs) and so that's how it started wow I love that I love that passing on of that idea as well and how that keeps you connected to Gail, you know, like I, I, I think yeah. that is a, a 
a thing seems to be like the trees you know connecting of the trees the under you know network is kind of a play there i think that is absolutely beautiful yeah so can we get to the choreographing upside down part because i kind of <laughs> this is a little bit my thing but i keep thinking i can't help but think that that means you have to plan the choreography upside down a little bit and for you that's it's probably just so instinctual for you now but i i kind of imagine that your process would be quite different to and that it has it has a unique process but maybe maybe it's only when it goes up that it becomes different but I'd love for you to talk just a little bit about that maybe, or how how do you train dancers? Do they come to you trained already? And so do you all have a language that is already that vocabulary? Do you teach them that vocabulary in terms of the lingo, you know, like that you would need yeah. to use for safety, all of those things like, and then what does the dancey process look like? <laughs> Or how does it unfold more like rather than aesthetically look like, but you know, do you know what I mean? Like, yeah, totally. Yeah. It's a, uh, those are a lot of questions, Claire. I know. I'm so into, I'm so interested though. I mean, I should just come and watch you rehearse, shouldn't I? I should just do that if I can. As a point. Well, it would depend because the first thing I have to say is it, the work is always location specific. Yeah. It, it doesn't, it does not, tour easily it has to be recreated in every location and it has to have a relationship to that location because yeah. with trees no tree is the same with cliffs mm. it's very rare to find a perfectly smooth cliff and mm. if you did it would you may as well dance on a building yes <laughs> you don't get to dance on buildings very long normally like you're the, you're against the clock right uh -huh, you know, uh -huh. people will say you want to do what you want to mm. do mm, where, when, why? Mm -hmm. And they might say, okay, you can do it for four hours a day for five days. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden you have to create a whole show mm -hmm. in five days. Mm -hmm. And when maybe it rains for three of them. Yeah. So I would say when I started out, everything that we discovered as a movement was was precious. It became vocabulary and we knew this is something we can do. And so slowly that vocabulary was discovered piece by piece. And a lot of the times when we were under time pressure, it would be about assembling that vocabulary and selecting some music and doing something that was kind of entertaining and fulfilled the bill of whoever had hired us mm -hmm. to, to place dance in this unique location. Mm -hmm. And some of our really early supporters were the Dance Center, because we danced on the building for the opening of the dance center. I remember that. 2001, right? Yeah. On 2001. Mm -hmm. And the street has all of the electric cables for the buses underneath. Oh, so we couldn't yeah. let our ropes hang down to the ground. <sighs> and the building has, it's got uh, those big ledges on it up, up near the top, which isn't yeah. so good for the rope dropping. So we had these tiers. The front of the building, which was on Granville Street, which was the busy street, we wanted to highlight like that for the opening. As you know, there's no smooth, easy surface there. Mm -hmm. So we really discovered and created choreography that suited that building. And, mm -hmm. and that was quite, quite lovely, but it was also very specific. Mm -hmm. We ended up doing some uh, balancing on the ledge 
on the seventh floor, which was feels really remarkable as a dancer to be high up in the air and uh, standing on one leg in an arabesque or in handstand or something like that was quite thrilling Mm -hmm. for us as dancers and for audiences. Mm-hmm. But once we'd kind of discovered that, you've sort of left an imprint on that place. It's not like I want to go back and create different shows, trying to figure out something new there. No. And so in the early days, when we didn't have any funding, and it was most of our work was responsive to somebody calling and saying, hey, can you do a performance? We would just do everything we knew how to do and make it look good and work fast and get it done. <laughs> and then when when I was able to get a little bit of grant funding and start to create some full-length shows, I would go back into the theater and sort of bring my contemporary dance roots back into the process and mm-hmm. work with the lighting designer and a costume designer and, and play with the equipment in that context and, mm-hmm. and continue discovering. And I would, and in those early days, I would train dancers as we created the shows. Yeah. So you would, if you had some climbing experience or you had the, the desire, I would maybe take you to the climbing gym or out to the cliffs and we would try a few things. And yeah, training people from, from the first moment, putting the climbing harness on, how to tie your knots, how to stay safe, how to, how to do this how to do this movement vocabulary. Mm -hmm. So I got really good at breaking things down. Mm. And one of the things when you're talking about upside down and how do you create upside down? Well, upside down is only one orientation in the vertical dance canon. Yeah. When you're, when you've got a stage, the ground is down and the uh, grid is up, but that orientation doesn't really change for as a, as a vertical dancer when you're upside down your feet are still the ground basically right when you're yeah. when you're standing sideways on a wall the wall is the ground yeah so your front of your body you're always facing front whichever where whichever way your eyes and your breasts and your knees are facing that's front you yeah. know your toes are facing and if you are upside down you know, your feet are to the sky and your head is to the ground, but that's only one orientation. So, mm-hmm. you know, your feet, you can also be feet standing on the wall with your belly facing the sky, mm-hmm. right? And then the ground is the wall. Yeah. So, you know, you have to get really good at describing those orientations and also not losing your awareness of where you are and how you're going because all of a sudden it's much more three-dimensional how gravity's influencing your body um, which way you're facing what happens when you're upside down and you put your feet on the wall and you want to come right side up how do you do that yeah Uh, you have to maintain that relationship to your body basically Mm -hmm. is what I would say and that's so I don't really think of it as upside down no and I was thinking of the perpendicular as well like there is this sense of it just feel I don't know if gravity is the right word in this in the situation because it feels like that's a feel like that's overloading that in the moment because from from my experience of seeing it and from talking to some dancers who have experienced it there is that sense of it is decentralized a little bit but also the grounding is so important to find at all times but grounding the word means something different obviously well think of it this way so 
the how gravity is always there, but mm-hmm. when you're standing on your feet on the ground, it is pouring down, down. from your head to your feet, mm-hmm. right? So mm-hmm. you are interacting, you're pushing against gravity mm-hmm. every single moment of your life mm-hmm. that you are standing on the ground. That is mm-hmm. an act of resistance. Yes. <laughs> when you when you lie down, your surface area is is larger. That gravity is spread out over a larger area, so it's not pushing down on you the same way which is why lying down is restful Mm -hmm. so if you think of in your harness when you're lying down and the wall is your floor the Mm -hmm. wall is your dance floor you the reason you can jump higher is because you actually have gravity distributed over more of your body right Mm -hmm. and so you can you have that sense of suspension Mm -hmm. so I think that for for myself one of the intriguing things about this practice is how the the clear connections to physics mm. and the, that curiosity about being able to reorient yourself from different perspectives and view the movement from different perspectives while still staying in your body and knowing where you are and where you're facing. Absolutely. And not being so concerned about what is down and what is up, but knowing where your center is, knowing where, knowing what grounding is. Yeah. And I love that. Just to back to the, the concert dance stuff of like, you're talking about multiple fronts, even though, you know, the body is always front, but the body is not the gaze of the audience. The front body is the, is the front. Yeah. I think it's, yeah, it's just like that just really helps to like, I think for me, give me that really embodied sense of it instead of like, as a spectator watching that, but to imagine a little bit more about what my body would be having to do (laughs) to be there. I think that's what I'm really very interested in. That's also a trap that vertical dance choreographers can fall into because we can really fall in love with what's possible when we're facing away from the audience. When we're facing with our belly up to the sky, we can do these amazing, huge leaps that as a dancer, you don't want to stop doing. You just Mm -hmm. think this is absolutely... This is absolutely fantastic. After all these years of trying to get up off the ground doing jetés, here I go. This jeté has got a hang time of 10 seconds. And I can rotate five times. So that is thrilling. But it doesn't serve your connection to the audience necessarily, right? So this is something for myself is not a dabbler, somebody who's a specialist and been committed to this kind of work. I've really had to, to work to discover and remember those connections to the audience that make the work that, that make contemporary dance in particular so lovely that intimacy of of expression of emotion the access to the softening of your chest and the that connection to your face and and all of the emotion that comes with that front of your torso and and your face and so finding ways to bring that into the work i think is it, you have to do it as a choreographer otherwise you're kind of just wallpaper or Christmas ornaments or something. It's pretty, but it's yeah. not, not enough. No, and there's also the conceptual crafting, right? There's the transitioning yeah. out of these like wonderful feeling things to the kind of nuts and bolts of like um, being able to craft a, a work that uh, then is is audiences are engaging in it for that yeah. reason, you know, for the for its whole. Yeah, that's, that's that's so great. Could you talk a little bit about, in the context of what you've learned from your different experiences and on different projects, what would be the ultimate highs and lows, pardon the pun, not like in terms of verticality, but in terms of your emotional like sense of a project, maybe, yeah, the kind of best and worst of times <laughs> within a 
you know, within a dance kind of production context, perhaps? Yeah, well, I will just start by saying it's it's really intense. And, you know, we, we mentioned earlier on, you did not see yourself taking a path as a choreographer, and I did not see myself taking a path as an artistic director. In my case, it was because I had two experiences, two close friends who were artistic directors, and I saw how challenging that job was and how little support they had. Mm -hmm. And I just thought, oh, gosh, I never want to do that. You know, I'm happy to support somebody who's doing that, but I don't want to do that job. Mm -hmm. And so now at this point, that's my job. And I still kind of feel that way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Actually, I really, I am kind of bossy by nature. And <laughs> I really do appreciate the complexity of this job. And it's not for everybody. Mm-hmm. There's just such a, a wide range of skills that I've had to like learn as like life or death, you know, and, and some, thing, some things I had no training in because I was such a, an artist. I'd never went to school and learned anything practical never learned anything about budgets or how to write or anything like that and yet these are life and death skills and yeah absolutely (laughs) running a dance production company especially yours yes risk management yeah you can't afford not to be able to write and not to be able to budget and not to be able to negotiate and figure out all of these things so I've learned all these things on the job and I think I'm pretty good at it because I'm still doing it Uh but it is really tough and there's been points in my path with different projects where it's the vision has been so ambitious and so intense (laughs) that by the time everything gets set up and it's in motion I sort of feel numb and drained and I can't exhausted yeah yeah, I just can't enjoy it yeah yeah (laughs) but then the audiences do and the dancers do and the whole, you know, there's a sense of it kind of leaving you <laughs> and like the the motivation and everything is picked up by other people, right? Which is kind of a beautiful thing. Oh my gosh. I have to say, yes, I just have to acknowledge like how much support people have given me, how much trust they've given me, how much of their, their time they've given mm. this work. And mm. what they've, the trust is enormous. And so yeah. you, it really is, it really is very special in that way. And yeah, it, so that's really, really rewarding. And, and it's interesting because starting off when I was dancing, I was so involved in myself as an athlete and myself as a dancer. I really never thought about anything else. If it didn't apply to me, I didn't think about it, right. honestly. Yeah. I was Not that I was just like a greedy, selfish person. I had lovely relationships and appreciation of the world and nature and people and things. But ultimately, in terms of what I was doing, it was taking care of myself and making sure that my body could function and that mm-hmm. I was a dancer. Mm-hmm. And everything was framed that way. And And in order to become the director of Ariosa and to lead all of these people, I've had to totally change who I am. Like I barely even feel like a dancer anymore, actually, Mm. which is, which I'm really sad about. And I really need to change at this point in my career. Like I kind of need to come full circle and make it more personal again, because I feel like I've really sacrificed so much of my own life and health and time that, that where it all started, it's all gone so far in a different direction. And it's really, 
Mm-hmm. It's really rewarding in a different way, but it's just not healthy. <laughs> yeah. And I'm starting to really feel that as I get older. Yeah. I hope you do find that for yourself and you do pull yeah. that back because I think what that would be an amazing offering as well to the world to come back around to, to that. I want to go back to the piece. Yeah, I was, I was just going to say, to do that piece again <laughs> or to do something there again with all of this experience and all of this knowledge and all of this wisdom you know embodied and kind of you know like thrown at you from the outside wisdom you know like it would just be even if it wasn't even for anybody else even if it wasn't a film just for you I think it just I, yeah oh. <sighs> so I'd like to talk or maybe we can just finish around this there's I'm going to tie in a few ideas that I've shared with you beforehand but just around collaboration producing the work of other artists and I'm going to tie in with that, that you won the Crystal Dance Prize this year. And there are all sorts of things that you're, you and your collaborators and collaborations are kind of, you know, kind of, there's a lot of germination happening. Like you have a lot of uh, generative ideas and other people's work as well. So the question is around collaborations. Now you're moving into producing other people's work, but also it seems like with the Crystal Dance Prize, there's an international component and collaboration is really big and producing is really really big and could you talk a little bit about that project for the crystal dance prize and also you producing other works because i think that's a really exciting space especially in our conversation around expanding dance and expanding dance perspectives yeah well thank you for asking that because (laughs) i really do feel like for myself this awareness of becoming a producer is Mm. again it just sort of (laughs) happened yeah <laughs> it wasn't part of the plan but I was but you know uh so the project for the crystal dance prize is something that's been in the making for many years now and we're so thrilled to have that support there's an artist in Croatia her name is Maria Skechik and she actually trained at Concordia and uh won a prize for choreography there back in the day mm-hmm. But she went home to Croatia after the war. She came to Canada partially because of the war there. And I'm quite drawn to her because she found her own practice in the mountains in Croatia. Mm. And she had no other dancers to work with. She recruited the mountain rescue team to support her in her work and recruited the national park to produce her performances in the canyon. And she's making site-specific work. And I was just thrilled. You know, it's so thrilling when you think, wow, I'm really discovering something new for myself. But then when you find that other people are discovering it too, you really start to think, well, we have always have to remember that. I think just because something's new to us doesn't mean it's new. You know, this type of work has been going on for many, many years. And, mm-hmm. and, and the fact that I've met these artists all around the world who've had similar, they're alone and they have an idea and then they, ha- they build it from nothing. Mm. And, so I've met other vertical dance choreographers that have basically gone through the same revelations and process that I have. And mm-hmm. Maria's one of them. And so we have this opportunity to, to create a, a theater performance that's going to feature her work with some Ariosa dancers. And mm-hmm. for me to bring some of my most recent choreography over to continue developing it and bring it over to her hometown of Jakovo, which is uh, in uh, eastern Croatia near the, near the Bordio with, with Serbia and is you know, a, a city that was quite affected by the war. 
Yeah. And we're also going to da- go back to the mountains where Maria's established a relationship in the Paklanitsa region, which is the, the Velabit Mountains. And they're on the coast in Dalmatia. And they're these beautiful limestone mountains where wow. General Tito actually hollowed out the mountains to create a home for his army ah. back, in the, back in the day when <laughs> that was the plan. You know? <laughs> yeah. so, wow. So that, so that infrastructure still exists inside mm-hmm. these mountains and mm-hmm. and uh there's now there's a gallery and uh, a theater space and a cafe and all these places where we can use to stage uh wow our events plus we're getting permission to use these climbing routes to actually stage a, a performance uh in collaboration with sarah fuller who creates these camouflage garments so ah. that we can so that we can connect to the landscape and call attention to some of the endangered species in the canyon. Oh my so gosh. there's all of these connections coming in. For me, the end of one piece, that relationship always, it's kind of hard to leave. And so I always feel like my last work is a starting place for the next work. Mm. You know, there's always those connections. And quite often it's the people that are the connections, the collaborators that you really connect to that you want to pick up and do another project with because Mm. it was so satisfying the first time. Yeah. That's wonderful. So the Croatia project is, is going to be a multi-year project. Yeah. You know, we'll be doing, we'll be doing some workshopping of these very different two very different presentations in different regions of Croatia in uh, September, and then continuing to develop them on location in those communities Mm. over the following years and then maria will be coming to vancouver and bringing an iteration of something that we're doing together so wonderful will you have time to actually document the process with areas on your website something because i think people would probably be quite interested in trying to follow this project over the over the years i think that would be amazing especially going inside the mountains i love that idea that now you're going inside the mountains i mean just when we thought you couldn't go find any other space to do your (laughs) you're going inside (laughs) so yeah it's totally amazing it's brilliant yeah and i think that uh yes we will be documenting it i mean maria's very she's got a she's nurtured a really amazing crew of photographers and videographers that she works with and who can edit video really quickly and one of the dancers who's been working with Ariosa since 2003 Chandra Crown is Ah. also branching out into video editing and filmmaking and so she's going to be coming along on that project as well and fabulous he happens to to manage our social media and things like that and update our website so yes I think there's a really good tie in there for yeah diary oh wonderful yeah that's Mm -hmm. so good and then you have the then you're producing other people's works and I believe that this is what we'll be seeing at the dance center is that correct Yes. Well, you know, Ariosa has a long-term artist-in-residence relationship with uh, Butterflies in Spirit, and they are a group of family members who advocate for their uh, missing and murdered Indigenous relatives, uh, mothers, grandmothers, the other families as well. And it's we started working together in 2017 when I asked them to participate in a performance we were uh, co-creating with Spakwa Slolom in Stanley Park and Mm -hmm. we wanted to bring the community together to do different performances in the park and 
butterflies had been recommended to me and they were very sweet and showed up and and explained why they were dancing and and this is part of my journey towards dance as healing and that understanding is that these women are professional dancers now they've celebrated their 10th anniversary but they started out they danced for a reason and mm. that was because they needed to call attention to their lives and their families' lives. Mm. And they shut down uh, a Granville in Georgia to with this message. Mm. And so dance, having a purpose that is so vital and mm. so important is something that's really means something to me as a contemporary dancer. Mm. Sometimes you wonder, why am I doing this? And mm-hmm. who understands it? And there's no, there weren't any people there. Yeah, <laughs> we're just doing it for each other, you know, exactly. like in the dance community yeah. sometimes, yeah. And so, yeah, so recognizing how the how vital the work that the butterflies is in terms of them being able to do their own healing and help with the healing of others is something that is really compels me. And establishing that relationship between us where I can provide some administrative support and uh, help with some of the nitty gritty that I've had to go through to get where I am as an artistic director. Mm-hmm. To make that easier for other artists. Yeah, absolutely. To carry some of that, carry some of that weight, right? And some yeah. yeah. And and for to give them the flexibility. I mean, really, they're advocates and activists, so they need to be one step removed from some of these designations and hoops you have to jump through. Yeah, amazing. And so that's become another thing that's really important to me that makes my work meaningful. Yeah. So there's that. And 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 it is really interesting because it does it, uh, it often challenges just even what i know and how things are supposed to be done and 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 just seeing what happens when people have time and money to really do what they want to do mm-hmm. is quite an eye opener too because mm-hmm. you start to realize a lot of things what they're really suffering from is time and money <laughs> right right exactly yeah because yeah, it gives you it gives you a lot of it gives you space to be able to think differently if you're not in survival mode you know that it is a different it is a privileged space but it shouldn't be it shouldn't be a white privileged space in that same way it's not the same kind of privileged space it because you have to be ready to be able to think differently if you have the time and the money (laughs) I think that's the point but yeah I mean I think that's just a that's so that's so great so we will see this work in May. Yeah, what you're going to see in May, it's quite interesting because, you know, we're talking a little bit about the butterflies. And the thing about yeah. the butterflies is that we've created a work to honor their 10th anniversary, which was produced at the Playhouse last April 30th. So we're mm-hmm. almost coming up with the one year anniversary. Yeah. And that was the biggest thing I've ever produced. There was like 95 artists and designers and crew members involved. And most of them were Indigenous. Mm-hmm. So that was really exciting for me. And to see that sense of family and those connections and to to do a four-hour show. Oh, wow. <laughs> that really, yeah, that really gave people a sense of, hey, this is how we do it, right? Yeah. <laughs> hey, you and Spectacle seem to live together, don't they? <laughs> I see what you mean about work taking over your life. I mean, it's not just work. It's like Spectacle. Massive. Exactly. And then so all of a sudden realizing, oh, my gosh, this is a huge production and realizing, hey, this is kind of an interesting job because on the day I wasn't dancing. I wasn't doing anything. I was just kind of walking around, saying hello to people, you know, getting on things. And at that point, my work was done. So yeah. it, was quite, it was quite exciting. And then uh, but 
in this. So, so we're going to be presenting some excerpts of that work because what happened is during COVID, one of the, the butterflies who choreographed a duet, she got COVID, her partner got COVID. So Ariosa dancers had to step in. They weren't able to perform in this, in this really mm. important community event. They didn't get to dance their own choreography. And so this is an opportunity to continue sharing our practice with the harness dancing and bring that work to a dance center audience because audience at the Playhouse was not the dance center audience. It's a very different audience. Yeah. And it's great because there's, there's an intimacy to this to this presentation, right? That we yeah. wouldn't, yeah, 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 it's great. It's but then the other part of it is Landon Krantz, who is a deaf uh, theater artist. Yes, yes. And so I've been working with Landon. He's come in to do some workshops with us. We did our first one just before COVID hit. Hmm. And we did it. So 2020, I think in April, we managed to squeak out a few days of practice or something like that. And then, hmm. or maybe it was February. And then the next time we saw each other was at the Playhouse before they reopened. Right. They let us come in and do a workshop on stage, which oh, was amazing. so amazing. And so he's coming back in what we're trying to do together and we're figuring out. And this is the first time we're going to be able to try and share that concept with the audience is find a way to bring deaf, hard of hearing and hearing audiences together without, you know, it's not about creating a work that's accessible for deaf audiences by adding ASL interpretation. That's not really what it's about. It's about recognizing that ASL is a unspoken language. Dance is an unspoken language. There's a lot of cultural connection between choreography and sign language and how communication in deaf culture, because it's so visual. So a lot of things you don't do as a hearing person, like tap someone on the shoulder or stand right in front of someone or walk in between two people that you that that we don't we don't even understand as hearing people that these are normal parts of deaf culture mm. uh, and that the way that we relate to each other could use less talking and <laughs> more physical interaction yeah more, more paying attention to each other like uh-huh. paying attention Yes. So I'm really intrigued to sort of discover those connections between deaf culture, ASL, and movement practice. Yeah, that's amazing. Do you know the date of the event? Yes, it's May 18th. May 18th. It's May 18th, and yes. it's part of the Discover Dance series. So it's the noontime performance. It's an, a nice, easy, easy ticket price and easy easy uh length because it fits into about an hour and i've i i go to these sometimes and sometimes i do the talk back for these and i've always had a wonderful time at them the conversations are always very exciting and it just it kind of grows the interest grows from the like experience of the presentation to the conversation to when people are leaving like they're always such wonderful events to go to oh this is really exciting julia i think that's great um <laughs> Well, thank you so much for your time. I would love to, well, we could keep going with other projects, but we've got, we've got so much information. I think this is a really good place to end. And uh, I just want to, yeah, I really look forward to seeing that show and to seeing whatever we can see film-wise, of documentation-wise of the other work that you're doing. But yeah, this has been really wonderful. It's been lovely to get to know you and your work and your journey a little more for all of that. Yeah, great. Well, thank you, Claire. pleasure. And um, I'll see you in the in the flesh, perpendicular, upside down, or straight up. 
<laughs> very soon. <laughs> okay. I look forward to that. <laughs> okay, great. Thanks so much again. Bye for now. Okay. Bye for now. Thank you so much for listening. We would love for you to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you get your podcasts, as this will help other listeners find us and help us to grow our dance audience. We'll be back next month. In the meantime, you can follow us on Facebook at The Dance Centre, Twitter at Dance Centre, and Instagram at The Dance Centre BC. And if you'd like to support our work, please consider making a donation. Just go to our website at thedancecenter.ca where you'll find extensive information about our upcoming programs and events. The music for the Dance Centre podcast was composed by James B. Maxwell. Always a pleasure to connect with you through dance. Until next time.